podcasts are becoming a relevant source of news coverage for listeners. Well, I mean, I think we can all agree with that. <laughs> and a- quite right too. So keep tuning in to the Media Week podcast. <laughs> You're funny you, today. You, you've just dropped this in there as a big old plug for you us. You are hilarious. Welcome to the Media Week podcast, the podcast made for media people by media people. Don't worry, we're not your CEOs just yet. We're your common media folk in the weeds of the day to day. Each episode, we'll share opinions on hot topics in the media world, along with some bants to keep you going on a Friday afternoon. So who's in the room? It's me, your host, Harriet from Publicis, Jack from Craft. Howdy. Buki from Wavemaker. Hey, hey. And Charlie from MIQ. Welcome. In today's episode, we'll discuss the industry attention obsession. Just what do we mean by measuring attention these days? We'll discuss. But first... In gaming, to counter online harassment, live streaming platform Twitch will allow users to stop banned users from viewing their streams. So streamers can currently block users from chats, but this update will mean that streams can be hidden from blocked users. So will this impact advertisers spend? I expect so, but in a, a positive way. I guess from like a moral standpoint, it's good, but that surely their proportion of banned users can't be significant enough to actually impact ad revenue. Oh, I hate the word surely because we can never be sure, but <laughs> I do kind of agree. I would agree, yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing is, in my mind, they're introducing safety features to yeah. better protect their audiences. That, to me, is a sell for brands. Yeah. yeah. So we'll hopefully see advertiser spend increase. Or to protect Tesco from being called out by eco-warriors on Twitch. I don't know. Go. Going off on a tangent here, big, big old seal of approval there. <laughs> In social, Meta is blocking news access on its platforms in Canada following legislation that requires tech companies to negotiate payments to news organisations for hosting content. This received criticism at the highest level. Canadian Prime Minister was rightly pissed off as this move sprang into action as wildfires raged through various parts of Canada back in August. The Canadian Prime Minister accused Meta of putting corporate profits ahead of people's safety. Blimey. I'm interested in your points of view, because for me, it was a little bit mind boggling how the whole thing came to be. I get the timing of it isn't perfect in terms of isn't good at all, rather, in terms Mm. of the wildfires. But so what you're saying is Meta has a platform and the news outlets were happy to post their content and have their content on those platforms when they were driving traffic back to the news outlets. But now they've decided that actually they're not getting the revenue they think they deserve. So I don't know who asked the government to put in the legislation. And now means that to have the news content on there, I need Meta has to pay them. If that's my company, I'll be like, you're moving like a cartel. You literally said to me, I now have to pay you for something that I didn't ask you for. Take it back. I think it makes it very difficult for for the publishers, doesn't it? Because you're going to be a little bit hamstrung. You're also kind of artificially keeping down quality news. I assume we're talking quality news here. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. CNN also reported on Google's plans to remove news contents uh, from its platforms in Canada as well. So interesting. Is it just like the power moving away from traditional sort of news outlets to, you know, the well, not new kids on the block anymore, the middle-aged kids on the block of, you know, the likes of Meta (laughs) and and social platforms? It's the other way around, right? It's taking the power away from them. From who, sorry? The power from the big tech giants. 
so it's it's actually sorry I've misunderstood then so it's actually legacy media using their connections within the government because you know there's a pretty much a revolving door often in in countries isn't there so it, they're le- leaning on it maybe it's a good thing then but at the same time it's not great business is it well I think I'm all for the local news outlets really exactly. you know let's let's knock the tech giants down a peg Exactly. People go and look for their news now a little bit, but the only problem is we're inherently lazy as a people, so we won't go and look for yeah. the news. That's the only problem. In a perfect world, we would go and be like, well, I'm just going to go and find it, but yeah. I'm not going to do that. In audio news, an article in the trade press highlights how podcasts are becoming a relevant source of news coverage for listeners. Well, I mean, I think we can all agree with that. <laughs> and a- quite right, too. <laughs> with the vast number of trade publications, keeping up on industry topics can be a real job in itself. So keep tuning in to the Media Week podcast. <laughs> You're funny you, today. You, you've just dropped this in there as a big old plug for you us. You are hilarious today. Join your side. That is, that's pretty good. Yeah. We do the work for you. <laughs> Harriet does the, does the work. We Harriet does the work and we take the credit. Utter, utter shite. <laughs> in Out of Home, the ASA concludes that a giant out of home billboard, including an OnlyFans model, was not in breach of advertising guidelines. According to Trade Press, the ad received backlash from Harrow, Edgware and Lambeth residents due to its proximity of the advert to schools. So what is our take on that? This is very funny because I'm a Harrow girl. Like I've lived in Harrow, I grew up in Harrow, get my hair done in Edgware. Like it is actually a bit mad to me that they're like, this is the biggest of our issues right now. So <laughs> I don't think that that has any call for it. As a result, I did have to obviously like have a look at this and go and you know search it and actually the ad isn't even that bad i don't think i think there's a lot of underwear brands and a lingerie brand M&S. stuff like that mns even literally mns dove they yeah. all have brands and it's literally very similar the difference is she might have an additional smolder in her eye but <laughs> in terms of the way that she's standing and posed it's not that different i then it also came up a similar ad that was not banned by the powers that be in Australia. And I do think that one should have been banned because she was doing the most. Right. I mean, I think it's actually quite an interesting thing because I'd say kind of good good luck to the creator behind it because she's actually thinking about how you market yourself beyond just like, you know, relying on the Instagram algorithm or something yeah. like that. She's actually going out and sort of branding herself. And in a way, it's a classic case of like fame and notoriety kind of being intertwined because in getting banned, I believe she appeared on the BBC News website. And <laughs> that's about as good as it gets for yeah. getting eyeballs on you. And I mean, presumably there was some kind of growth in followers that that came after it. We'd need to check that. Okay, but I but I, imagine. I would. So. I would be prepared to bet a lot of money that it went up by quite a bit after that. On that point, sorry, there's yeah. a, you just reminded me of another person who did a very similar thing. I think it was a, a, a similar OnlyFans model who went and basically had, I think she had a bikini on in front of like Buckingham Palace or like some mm. somewhere that she shouldn't have had a bikini on and was like forcibly removed by like police and absolutely blew up i think i think her subscribers more than like tripled or something like that there you go well there's no such thing as bad publicity right well so. we'll see <laughs> depends, depends what the we'll category see, is yeah, until, until the media week podcast gets cancelled <laughs> in the food category 
In a recent article in the trade press, Cadbury's reports on growing brand value. Yes, that's right. Cadbury's, owned by Mondelez, grew by nearly half between this year and last year. And when I say grew, grew in brand value specifically. This means that Cadbury's has entered into the top 20 most valuable global food brands. Other interesting rankings include Nestle, which maintained its position overall. Doritos saw growth. Lay's, also known as Walker's, saw growth. Unilever, interestingly, dropped 10 places. So I haven't actually looked at the ranking system itself, but... When we talk about brand value, what we're referring to is, I suppose, the intangible assets and perception of worth that a, a brand holds Absolutely. in the minds of consumers in the market. And Very that's eloquently put. beyond yeah. its functional attributes. So what do we think on Nestle maintaining its position and Unilever dropping 10 places? I think it's really interesting. I think certainly like you look at Cadbury's in a company that's invested in the article talks about how they've invested more recently. And I think we're always saying like always telling the stories about the brands that invest more. Typically, we're then going to see increasing their sort of their their market share, increasing people talking about them. But I think what was also interesting there, that Unilever piece is that I think one of the bits came that one of the investors in Unilever said that the fact that they've dropped is the fact that they so much talk about the good work that they're doing, the brand purpose rather than the actual products which I think is something, you know, we sort of looked at in the past about not necessarily greenwashing, but if we're talking about, you know, what we stand for and not actually about how your product's great, can you actually start losing your sort of relevance? Yes, okay, cool, you're a great brand and you're you're working well, but do you actually stop thinking about, oh, I'm going to buy, you know, this bar of soap because actually it's going to make me cleaner or, or smells nicer? I think on the Unilever one, and I ain't even going to get started on Unilever one, but I think there are other elements at play as to why people might be, kind of reassessing, like you say, the brand value. It's not the functional attributes of the individual brands underneath the umbrella, but the brand value of Unilever as a whole, you know, when you look at where the company started. So I'm not going to even go any further than that. If you want to research it, research it yourselves. <laughs> but there is a huge subset of people who are like having their eyes opened a little bit to some of that stuff. Well, there we go. That's that's brand value and, and coverage. <laughs> So in other industry news, media platform Teeds work with Lumen Research on a meta-analysis of combined third-party attention and brand lift metrics. There was an article that uh, documenting the findings of the research, but what it showed is that it reinforced attention as a much stronger predictor of effective viewability. So effective and precise measurement is obviously a top priority for all of us as media folk. Attention metrics generally help media agencies assess the effectiveness of their campaigns and and make data-driven decisions for optimising their strategies. But what do we actually mean by this term? What is the process of quantifying attention metrics like engagement, uh, interest and focus? How do we measure it? And what do we mean when we talk about the attention economy flippantly? I wanted to call you out on this one because I don't know if you remember back in 2015 when we were lowly advertising, we weren't even graduate students at this point, we had a media economics module and I actually, I wrote one of my papers on this and let me tell you the name of it, I had to dig it out of my emails. It was, to what extent are new media technologies undermining exposure as the dominant measure of advertising audience value? So, (laughs) hang on, we're going to get... Are you about to read me one of your essays? I should do, I should do. And I (laughs) I wrote this in 2015. And I think where we're going to conclude is going to be really interesting because I think we still haven't really shifted. And basically I concluded that exposure, and I'm talking CPM, so I'm going back a little bit further because we're talking about viewability versus attention right now. Mm -hmm. But at the time, 
viewability wasn't a word, still isn't a word, not in the dictionary. But at the time, exposure versus attention was it. And I said it would always remain dominant as there was a more widely accepted definition. But what you've kind of already mentioned, different parties are measuring attention in different ways. And until there is one widely accepted way, I think we're going to struggle to use it universally and really push it through. I, so the, the main company that's the sort of the, the driving force behind the push for attention metrics is Lumen, right? So Lumen kind of have, you know, a lot of sway in this and have developed technologies for tracking eyeballs and ensuring that you're able to, you know, track the amount of attention that an ad gets. And the thing is, it's like attention is really, really important, right? Specifically, in, you know, when it comes to digital media channels, where there are issues with viewability and ad fraud, even more so. I'm intrigued to know what Charlie thinks about it as someone who works specifically in kind of programmatic media. What has the kind of the shift towards attention done for you? Yeah, I feel like attention was the hottest sort of media trend at like one point, like burst on the scene, maybe what, like a year or two ago, had sort of two years in the limelight. And I feel like has almost had a little bit period of going a little bit quieter, things like, you know, retail sort of media has come in a little bit, you know, things like sustainability. And I think now it's out of the limelight is when we're seeing a bit more of the work being done. I think this Teeds release, as much as it pains me to say it, than being a competitor, has actually... It's really interesting to see multiple campaigns combined together, looking across it, using sort of other partners to sort of look at it. Still reading through the study, there's the scientist in me somewhere is still like looking for a few more of the details to understand more about the study, but maybe there's confidentiality bit to this. But I think all the data we're seeing is that, I mean, if we're looking at viewability, that's never going to be a real impact. That's just whether it loads on a page, you know, someone yeah. scroll down that page. Attention is always going to be better than that so i think it, it is and everything we're seeing about tying back to awareness ad recall consideration purchase intent is it's all much stronger when we see highest engagement yeah. i think the biggest frustration i have is that we want to almost do that testing we often will do a campaign that runs with attention but then we don't necessarily repeat those results to test it again we don't then actually start looking at what were the bits that made the biggest impact to that there's not really the journey and maybe there's you no guys, rigor yeah maybe you guys see it more at sort of an agency level but i don't really see clients especially when there's so much scrutiny on ad budgets rather than testing and showing that something really works they're just sticking with what's safe so is that something you guys see as well? Or? I think also on, on that point, I completely agree with the point around like there needing to be a bit more kind of rigor behind how we do test and learn stuff. I think that it is just attention in a lot of cases does feel like another middle point or like middleman for like checking what real effectiveness is, which is, you know, changes to kind of key brand metrics, changes to things like your sales and the tangible business things and behavioral measures that actually affect your business. Because obviously it's still just a way of assessing if someone's noticed your ad. And we know that it's really important that people actually kind of notice. If you start pinning people only to attention metrics, then it's going to kind of start skewing how we approach certain uh, areas of media. I think that from a digital standpoint, there is lots of benefits tracking whether people are actually looking at digital ads or watching videos. But I think there's a lot of advertising that people don't directly engage with and they kind of passively take in and process. That's why we kind of operate at effective frequency levels. So we know that we have to get sort of really above three plus before people will really start to remember. And that's because it's opportunities to see. It doesn't mean people have seen it. Really, we've got to be careful about sort of measuring channels like radio where people are often doing 
something else at the same time and kind of measuring whether people are actually listening directly to it when in actual fact it's kind of about building that frequency up alongside it. Exactly. I think the whole thing, as much as it does make sense in some capacities, I still don't think it's ever really going to gain widespread traction. Firstly, in the, as I mentioned, the differences in the ways to do it, the differences you got in those opportunities to see, those passive advertising opportunities. And then also you got a lot of publishers, it's going to render a lot of their inventory not good. It's going to be like that placement doesn't get good attention. We're then going to see, you know, media prices go up as the inventory goes down because we only want those ones. And we're just going to create ourselves a bit of a price war. So I don't think it's going to get the traction people think it's going to get. I think people like Teeds and Lumen are doing that. Get your name out there. Absolutely do that. When we were talking about viewability a few years back, there was a point, I think, when we were like, oh, do we even try and trade on 100% viewability? That conversation just stopped because then they thought, do you know what? This is not the place to put our stake in the ground. There's no point. So I think, as I thought in 2015, exposure will still remain the dominant currency in terms of audience value because of those opportunities to see and the way passive advertising works. And I don't think this is going to be the forefront, although I do think it's an interesting way to think about things. And basically to sort of, build on that point this is why your ad creative's got to be really really good because if people aren't going to notice your your advertising then your attention ain't going to be there anyway but you know those attention scores people like lumen doesn't actually take into account the creative it's done based upon a model yeah so yeah and for me it's just feeling very fake everything feels like fake news it feels like we are trying to engineer something to give ourselves more value, which we do a lot of the time as marketers and advertisers. That's what we do. We engineer scenarios and engineer spaces. But I do think it's a bit of a fad. I don't think it's going to... The results well, are there. Got optimised towards it, no? No, we don't. I don't have to do anything. And a lot of the time, <laughs> clients don't want to. Like, I, I think some clients think about it. I've worked with a lot of clients. No one has ever really cared about this. No one has ever really come to me and asked about this because it's long, it's expensive and it's confusing to be perfectly honest because there's no unified way of measuring it. And like you say, no one else is doing it. So I don't even have anything to benchmark against. What's the point? Well, the industry's obsession with attention is obviously very present Mm -hmm. and it will continue to be present. It ain't going anywhere yet. And it's not going anywhere. (laughs) Yet. Ring, ring. Ring, ring. Hello, media and on. All right, so we've got two today. The first one is, it just says, I want my evenings and weekends back. So I'm keen to get your thoughts on this because it kind of gives the impression that this person works long days and then often works over the weekend as well. And so what do you guys think on that? What should they do? I think they should read some articles on quiet quitting. (laughs) It's a very Gen Gen Z term at the moment. I think the term is supposed to represent a... disengagement of a current working practice I suppose where people are showing up doing the bare minimum and going home I'm not condoning that (laughs) approach that's an approach I wouldn't take myself but maybe this person should read a few articles of it and just take a bit of inspo from what the term means and how they can potentially apply it into their to their their mindset (laughs) about work and reposition or just discuss it with their company also. Not the quiet quitting part. (laughs) (laughs) Discuss the the weekend and evening work with said company. Gotcha. I mean, if you find yourself repeatedly working late, 
and working over weekends, then you've got to raise that with the powers that be. Like your senior leadership shouldn't be allowing that to happen. However, a lot of big network agencies, that is the kind of the expectation. Go lean. It's, yeah, it's, it's just a that you just essentially grind people into the ground until they go, which is why we see that enormous churn rate across the industry. There are places where it's not like that though. So I mean if you're if it gets to that point where you're like, I want them back and I've I've tried I've exhausted the other avenues. Get, get the hell out of Dodge. Are you getting a referral fee for bringing people <laughs> to Craft? Whereas... Well, I'll tell you what, if you, if, you, if you want to come work at Craft and you think you might be uh, yeah. good enough, See, come I'm not and do sure. it. Link in the show notes. I would actually put this back on the person. Like for me, and people might disagree, but I think this is very much on you. If you're working evenings and weekends, that is literally your choice. That is honestly your choice. Yeah. It is. I would. N- I don't work weekends, and I work at big network agency. I don't work evenings, and I don't work weekends. Never have. Never will. Doesn't work afternoons. Doesn't work mornings. <laughs> <laughs> I never can. I never have. Never will. I make sure my work is done. And if it's looking like I'm going to need to work, like you know, every now and again, if there's mm. one big pitch or there's one big proposal, yeah. different. But if it is looking like the workload's getting too much, I flag that early. So if you're waiting until you're ground into the ground to flag that like you just said rated mm. with the powers that be once it's gotten bad when it's getting bad i'm be like look there's not enough hours in the day to do this so i think there is a bit of an onus on you to stand up for yourself in the workplace but equally the workplace should be looking inwardly and making sure no one is burning themselves out i reckon also just maybe have a little conversation with yourself about getting yourself better at delegation and people uh, always say this but it's sometimes people are just expecting certain things from your job i think at that point if the company's not willing to change you need to leave and go somewhere else yeah where you that's can what I'm saying. it's too far down the line the company's not expecting anything they're expecting like when they said what's the timeline you'd be like i'm not it's not possible to do it in that timeline that's on the conversation you need to have so i think stand up for yourself okay i'm trying to be as cryptic as possible as a few people on my team listen to the podcast big up you thank you for listening thank you uh, I've been asked people. to work with the client. I just don't agree with the ethics of. Should I raise this with my team and try and get out of it, or is it career suicide? I reckon you should you should absolutely raise it. It's never going to be career suicide, and any empathetic boss is going to go. Will probably have noticed it as well. I think it depends on which it was. I remember years ago I asked not to work on SeaWorld because I was like, you know, I don't really agree with the whole sort of locking up of Shamu. Well, and and the rest of the fishy gang, but like, but I just yeah, it's like you you can you can ask. I mean, no one's. Then again, I have also worked on Japanese Tobacco International, so you know, my scruples only go so far. I think definitely, you know, approach it with leadership, but do it in a way that's slightly more proactive and assertive yeah. rather than just say I don't want to work on this. Say I've spoken to X, Y, and Z. There's ex-client that have a opening would you consider a, a swap or a, a transfer yeah so go with a solution to the problem you're about exactly. to present with because mm-hmm. otherwise you're just going to come across as a bit whiny yeah i yeah. don't want to work on it you, you've always got to respect that the company's looking to make money and i don't think your morals should ever stand against you it's yeah i think that's a really good you got really you got to be a pro always be a pro when you're Never approaching the one no. thing I will say, one <laughs> thing I will Life. say, I think it does depend on what the <laughs> what the ethics are because I've been watching on I don't know one of one of these like big farmer things on the whole Purdue mm. farmer. Oh, uh, kind of dope thing. sick. Yeah, mm. I, I watched dope sick a while ago, but now they've got another one on Netflix, and I'm watching that. And there's, there's a point in it where she's literally like, at that point, had anyone in the room said no, I don't think we should do this, 
then we would be in a very different world. So I think there is a huge, huge thing to be said. So I know we do need to respect that the business needs to make money and that's what they're doing. But if it's the right cause, I would definitely shout about it. I think it would be the opposite to career suicide if it's something that could be that could come out to be, you know, as damaging as the whole Purdue Pharma fiasco. Great. Well, that wraps up today's episode. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe. And if you're going to the Campaign Media Week Awards in October, we'll be there. So, you know, just remember what we look like, which is hard when we're on a podcast, but we will be there and hopefully see you. Come and introduce yourselves. The Media Week Awards shortlist is now live on the website, which is mediaweekawards.co.uk. If you made it, congratulations. We're really looking forward to seeing you on the night. If you didn't make it, commiserations. Come along anyway, and uh, I'm sure that uh, Harriet will buy you a drink. Why me? (laughs) 